Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's episode, Ross O'Carroll Kelly books have won the Irish Book Awards Popular Fiction Prize an unprecedented three times. The books, centering around Ireland's favourite airhead, have sold over a million copies and each title has been a perennial number one bestseller. Ross creator Paul Howard is adored by fans and revered by critics as the greatest satirist of this generation. He's also sold 400,000 theatre tickets with his plays, which I should mention. In the latest Ross book, Schmidt Happens, women take centre stage. Ross's wife has just given birth to a baby that isn't his. His son has walked out on his wife-to-be and his own mother is threatening revenge on Ross for an incident involving an olive in a martini. Ross O'Carroll Kelly is also Ireland's favourite misogynist. So we thought it was a good idea to bring Paul on to the women's podcast to ask how he's getting on in the Me Too era. How has Ross evolved? Will he ever be woke? And the kind of challenges faced when writing a character who is so at odds with the recent changes in modern culture. Paul Howard, we are absolutely delighted to have you on the Women's Podcast. And some people might be wondering, what's Paul Howard doing on the Women's Podcast? But as the creator of Ireland's favourite misogynist, <laughs> Russell Carol Kelly, we thought it was about time that we brought you in <laughs> to, to explain discuss, myself. to explain yourself, to explain <laughs> Ross. Um, so I suppose maybe you could start by talking a little bit for people who don't know about how Ross came about in the first place. And then mm. we'll get on to his woman, uh, casual sort of sexism and all the things that yeah. he does. I mean, he came about, uh, I suppose he existed in my head long before he ever existed on the page. Um, <clears throat> I suppose, you know, from the time I was I was a teenager, I was very class conscious when I was younger. I, I was very chippy about class. Um, you know, so I know we're going to talk about the misogyny of Ross, but but first and foremost, it, it was about class. And uh, no one in Ireland really uh, was writing about class. I mean, class was a huge issue when I was younger, like, you, you know, being being working class, being middle class. And I was very, very aware of it growing up, probably a lot more uh, of, a, of a factor then than it is now. Um, but I was aware of these sort of jock types, these sort of rugby jock types who talked a, comp- a completely different language to the one I grew up speaking. Uh, you know, and I saw them I and mean, they were they were kind of hard to miss because they were very loud and obnoxious. Um, and when I started uh, covering rugby, schools rugby, just doing markings for papers like the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, the Evening Press, uh, it brought me kind of face to face with them. Like I was suddenly, they were kind of an exotic species, I suppose, when I was a teenager, like, you know, but uh, when I when I started covering schools rugby, 
I was kind of rubbing up against them for the first time. I was seeing them up close. And, you know, that's when I heard the, I've told the story lots of times before, but I heard a kid say to his dad, I don't give a fuck how you think I play, just crack open the wallet. And so kind of that was the prototype for the Ross character. But when I actually started writing the column, uh, I kind of felt it, it was all there. And it was all of, you know, all of his sort of personality traits were, were kind of within easy reach. I knew exactly who he was, what he sounded like, what his attitude was towards women, what his attitude was towards people who'd less money than him, what his attitude towards, you know, people who didn't play rugby was. I kind of found that stuff pretty easy to access, probably because I'd been listening to it for so many years. The new book is Schmidt Happens. uh, And it is, I think it's, I actually think, and I've read all your books and uh, obviously we're friends, so put that out straight away. (laughs) But I actually think it might be, your best, actually. Thanks, and it just, it, it's just very, very funny. But one of the things I think really comes to the fore in this one and the last one as well is how Ross, who you said, as we know, he's, a, he's probably the biggest misogynist in Ireland. He's narcissistic. He treats women in a, you know, with, with sort of very casual way. He, he evaluates everybody, every woman according to their looks. Mm-hmm. Um, he does a lot of despicable things to women and has done over the time. But so how has Ross evolved as the Me Too movement and things like that have happened? And how has it been for you as a, as a writer of this character who is sort of like someone who people have always loved, mm. even though he's done despicable things? Yeah. But suddenly, you know, the world is saying you can't do that. You can't yeah. say that. You can't act like this towards people, not just in a sort of sexist terms, but racist terms yeah. and all these different things that have come a bit I more think, to the fore. I, you know, you see Ross has done despicable things. I mean, Ross has never really done anything worse than, you know, climbed out a window uh, to avoid... Uh, an awkward conversation with a girl he slept with the night before or, you know, uh, like had consensual sex with all of his girlfriend's friends. Like, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's not, I mean, I suppose it's despicable to me. And and that's, you know, that's why, uh, uh, you know, I, I, that's, I mean, that's part of the character. That's part of the thing of getting into a character. I mean, you couldn't have a woke Ross, for instance. I'm aware of that. You, can you imagine, like, who would read about a rugby jock who's woke. It's, it just would make really, really dull reading. Um, the early Ross books, like you mentioned, were full of that grading women uh, by how they looked, um, uh, that kind of stuff. But actually, if you watch if you watch Sex and the City now, and these books, the first Ross books came out in those kind of early years of Sex and the City. If you watch that now, you hear characters like Samantha uh, objectifying men in the way uh, men had traditionally objectified women. And at the time, that was celebrated. That was seen as as something that was, you know, uh, you know something to cheer on, that look, women can actually talk dirty on mainstream primetime television. And now I kind of think there's a little bit of Puritan as Puritanism has kind of entered the same. I know friends who were kind of cheering on Samantha years ago. Now, if they hear somebody refer to a woman as a bird, are swooning, you know. And I, I kind of think there's 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 a, it's kind of a, there's a sort of fashion for these things, you know, fashion for language, and and I think that's the case with with um, with with Ross as well. That at that time, those early books where where Ross is talking about women the way he does uh, that's exactly where Ross was in his life he's a 17, 18, 19, 20 year old rugby jock 
uh, and you can only write in his voice. You can only see the world through his eyes. You know, you can't, you know, I, I don't think writers should be kind of imposing their political views. Ross should be woke, I think, at this stage. I think Ross is still, all these years on, the misogyny has probably been dialed down a bit, but I think that's that has to do with the fact that Ross is getting older and there's a great uh, leavening that happens with age. You know, you you... You know, none of us are the same at 21 as we are at 42, for instance. And he's he's reaching middle age now and he has a daughter who's who's become a teenager. So I don't think while while he isn't he's far from woke, I think he see he probably even unconsciously sees the world a little bit differently. Yeah, now. but still, a lot of the stuff that we kind of we've all. I think you described it as stuff that we've all downloaded, the memos that we've all got about how you can speak and how you can behave. Ross still hasn't got a lot of those. So while I think a lot of people haven't got them. And I think if you're not on social media, there's a whole world of this stuff that you're not really aware of. But there are words uh, that it was perfectly okay to use five years ago sometimes five minutes ago that we, uh, that we have decided by consensus that we no longer use those words anymore. But if you are of a certain age or, you know, in Ross's case, of a certain background, it's quite possible you don't get those downloads. Uh, does that, you know, does that make you a bad person? I don't, I don't think so. It just makes him a person who hasn't got the downloads yet. So there's been so many, you know, cultural changes, uh, changes in language, you know, changes in attitude. We're, we're, we're required to take on board so much of this new stuff. Uh, and it's too much for someone like Ross. It's too much for a lot of people, but it's especially too much for someone like so Ross. So when he says his things now, in the earlier books, when he says those things, they didn't have to be qualified or nobody had to come in as much. I mean, there was always there was always people challenging Ross and saying that's disgraceful. It was never yeah. him on his own in this world where everything he does is, is right. You know, it wasn't never that. But nowadays, because there are all these like pressures and um, whether it's from social media or it's just different movements like I said the me, hashtag me too and all that now those are in it too so yeah. has that been fun to kind of do where you, you have the other extreme the people coming in all the time to police what Ross does and yet still there he is doing what he does yeah but but it, but the stakes are so much higher now because you know 15 years ago if Ross describes uh, a girl as a bird uh, he, he you know he gets a, f- a few funny looks from the girls in the group but now he's in a world where if he says something on social media, uh, he, he, you know, it, it could be he could be cancelled. You know, it's life. It's life changing. It's life ending, you know. And so so that's the difference for him now. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's difficult to handle. Of course, it is, you know, um, those things he can and can't say. So he has to qualify absolutely everything with if that's OK to say that now, which it never, ever is. And that, I think that's how I've handled it. Like, I can't change no, him as a character. I think he says sometimes, um, um, there was a girl sitting there, I think she was Irish, if that's still OK to say. Like, some of the things that... Yeah. He's, he's totally confused. Yeah, he's totally... <laughs> exactly. He's he's worse than not getting the downloads. He's actually got a completely skewed version of the download. So, you know, for instance, uh, th- there's a scene in the book where they're in UCD... And there's this kind of star chamber uh, and they're meeting uh, to discuss. There's a lecturer has asked Ronan where he's from because Ronan says, I play for the local GA club. And the lecturer says, oh, where are you from? 
and he's hauled up for a microaggression because he asked somebody from uh, what's considered a lower socioeconomic group uh, where he comes from, and this is considered microaggression. So they have this huge, uh, uh, tr- essentially a trial. Ross sees it as a trial, like they call it a hearing, but Ross actually said, no, this is a trial because there's a judge there and these are, these people are sitting in judgment of him. And uh, so, so Ross sees this lecturer's life destroyed because he's asked somebody where they're from. And that's the lesson he takes into life, that you're not allowed to talk about where people are from anymore. So at the same meeting, a student stands up and says, I've just come from the student bar uh, the, I just saw there's a song on the jukebox by somebody called David Bowie and it's called China Girl. And, you know, are we as a students union going to sit here and say it's OK to define somebody firstly by their ethnicity and secondly by their gender? Uh, and oh. everybody agrees that, they, that we need to get this David Bowie in here. <laughs> to, they, well, somebody says I think he might be dead. Somebody checks on Wikipedia and <laughs> discovers he's dead. Uh and I suppose, I mean, Ross is always, you know, with the Ross books, this is this is what you do with satire. Like you, you take a, a reality and and sometimes an extreme reality and you just make it even more cartoonish. Um, but that's a difficulty for Ross because he leaves that room and he thinks, oh, this is the world we're in now. And he blunders into situations where his dad says, where's that girl from? And he refuses, Ross refuses to say that she's where in Eastern Europe she's from because he says, you're not allowed to say where people are from anymore. And his dad says, why not? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> and that's his attitude towards the world now. He's just bungling, like a lot of people, like me sometimes, he's sort of bungling through the world, probably causing offence here and there and just hoping that, you know, it's not going to result in you being cancelled, you know? The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. One thing that people, I think, might think about as well is you did this amazing thing where you took this lad culture, this rugby culture, and you showed us all in a very satirical way the sort of worst of it or the kind of comedic sort of version of it. And then something like the Belfast rugby trial Mm. happens, the rape trial, and um, obviously they were acquitted and everything like that. And that must have been a tricky time because, as you said earlier, the relationships that Ross had were consensual and the most despicable thing he's done is string loads of women around and treat women like objects and all of that done in very much in tune to his personality. And yet here was this big thing involving rugby players. Was that a a difficult time or did you think about it and wonder should you tackle it in in any way? I mean, I never thought I should tackle it, you know. Um, I never thought, uh, you know, I I don't think a, a comedian weighing in um, on a serious subject like that um, is warranted. I didn't think it was appropriate at all. I got some blowback on social media, you know, like somebody said to me, you, you need to release a statement. I said, what? What? You know, what kind of a what? This is the world we're living in now where everybody thinks everything is their business. And, you know, I, I mean, I didn't sit through a, a, a second of the trial. I followed it uh, just with horror um, on social media and and in the newspapers, but never ever thought it was my place to sort of comment on this in any way. There's no, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll write about something if I think there's some kind of if there's a sort of outlet for comedy in it, but that's just absolutely you know appalling stuff. But there was two. There's been two times in the last twenty years when I found it really really difficult to write Ross, and the first was um, during the Annabelle's murder trial. 
and the second uh, was was during the Belfast rape trial. And it was, I think it had to do with, you know, for, yeah, the firstly, the attitude of the character, you know, that sort of shoulders back, um, unashamedly maleness, unashamedly male character, uh, you know, moving through the world with his attitudes. I mean, that, like, put it this way, there was, in, in the sort of six or eight weeks after uh, the Belfast rape trial, the columns were actually quite tame, actually, when I look back on them. And it was definitely influencing the language I used. Um, it should, I mean, it shouldn't. I mean, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I, th- I think as a, as a, as a writer, um, you know, you're writing about a character. I mean, you sh- I don't think you should sort of read a newspaper and say, well, actually, I'm going to tone that down because people might be upset by this or that. But just personally, because because the column was columns were coming out around that time, it was kind of difficult to write in the voice of a of a rugby jock. Mm. One one comment I saw on online was that uh, that they were wondering why you hadn't said anything about it in the work, not a statement, yeah. and said that the character Ross from the first one or two books would have had something to say about that. I thought that was an interesting take yeah. on it. Do you see where they're coming from on that? No, I, I, I don't. I don't think I ever would have. I, I, I mean, I just can't imagine reading about a case like that and thought, thinking I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that in my next comedy novel. I mean, it's the idea of that just appalls me. And it was the same at the time of the, the, the Annabelle's murder trial. Um, uh, the echo when it when it happened when when uh, Brian Murphy was was killed, and then during the trial four years later, those two times, every time I wrote a you know a sentence in Ross's uh, voice, I heard echoes of especially during the trial. I heard echoes of the characters who were on the witness stand, people who were witnesses giving evidence, and and the defendants themselves. Um, and that that's just difficult to do. Like you know, it, you know, if you're if you're a novelist and you're responding to something, sort of four or five years later, you're not you're not in that moment. But to do a weekly column while that trial was going on was was really hard. And it was exactly the same during the Belfast trial because, you know, it, it's a very sort of distinctive jockey voice, and it it's you know even even though, you know, these were these were um, men from the north. Uh, the pose is the same, you know, the, that, like I said, that sort of shoulders back, uh, testosterone personality was, was the same, you know, I think Ross is a little bit older now. Um, he's, he's definitely, um, he hasn't really matured. I suppose he's matured a little bit, but he's not the same. He's not the kid, the guy he was at sort of nineteen twenty. um, but like I said, I mean, there's nothing, there's never been anything in, in Ross uh, uh, that, that's, a, that's as, as vile as those um, WhatsApp messages that were, that were being exchanged. Do you think it's sort of, uh, you talk about the blowback that you got, a little yeah. bit of blowback. Is, is it because of our thing now, which has happened to a lot of different authors for different reasons, where there's a sort of seems to be a responsibility now on authors to... Uh, depict things in a certain way. You know, we've had all this talk about if you're not um, a trans person, you can't write uh, yeah. as a, as a uh, you know, a character that's trans or, you know, uh, it's happened to other female authors as well about various things. So is that part of it almost that you, there's a there's a different thing that's happened where authors are put on a different uh, level yeah. and they're expected, there's expectations. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that trans thing 
you know, around the time John Boyne's book came out, I, I thought it was just rubbish at the time. Absolute nonsense, you know. The, the fact that, I mean, Van Morrison um, wrote Madame George about a trans... I would say John Van Morrison had no right... that Madame George wasn't his story to tell because it can, it, it's about a trans person. Um, I, I, I just... I think it's nonsense. I mean, the, 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 the whole thing about art... The reason we love art is is because of its, um, you know, because of its irresponsibility, you know. And I don't think we're, I don't believe this thing. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a South Dublin uh, rugby jock who went to Blackrock College, but that doesn't mean I can't imagine that world. That's what writing is about. It's about imagination. It's what creativity is about. Um, but uh, yeah, there is that pressure. But I I think that's just. You know, the democratization of media, you've just got so many more voices now, you know, and I don't think 20 years ago, if 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 you wrote a book, somebody would come along and interview for, for instance, the Irish Times and say, do you think it's your place to write this book? I think you just accept that, you know, you're an artist, you're a creative person. It means seeing the world through different eyes, you know, um, Brett Easton Ellis isn't a serial killer, but does he have any right to write American Psycho, you know? Um, Bruce Springsteen Bruce Springsteen isn't a factory worker how dare he sing about factory workers in his songs um I think I think it's worse but I think I think it's just the pressure comes from comes from social media it comes from so many voices in your ear now and who have access to you who can actually get to you and say how dare you write that whereas you know 10 years ago you wouldn't have you wouldn't have had to listen to those voices um, so let's get back to Schmidt Happens anyway. And there is a lot of Me Too and there's a lot of, there are a lot of woke characters in your books, mm. actually. So Ross is definitely not one, but they're there now because what you do so brilliantly is reflect the times. So you've got the whole thing in UCD where they're picketing the UCD restaurant for selling sushi because it's cultural appropriation. And then they're picketing it again because they're only selling Irish food when they take the sushi away. Like it's all this kind of, you exaggerate and you're satirical yeah. about all the way the world is. So tell me about that and about uh, how important that is in terms of in this book and the last one as well, I think. I, I think um, I watch a lot of comedy, comedy. I watch a lot of stand-up comedy and I watch a lot of uh, panel shows with comedians on them. And I, I, I think... There's only one kind of comedy at the moment. Nobody, you know, everybody is sending up uh, the right and that's entirely justified. Uh, but no, but but it's not a sort of equal opportunities comedy. Like no, nobody's send, sending up uh, political correctness, uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, every, there's, there's a story in the, in the, um, papers last year that Manchester University has banned clapping uh, on campus and <laughs> the jazz hands instead of yeah the, the, everybody has to do <laughs> jazz hands instead of clapping and the idea is it might the clapping might trigger somebody into having an, an anxiety attack and I mean 10 years ago we would have laughed at that but there is this perception that if you laugh at that now, you're punching oh, no, down. No, I was just felt bad. I just covered my mouth because I laughed. At yeah, it. but but this this idea that because because you might find that funny that you're you're somehow punching down, and I don't I don't get that. I don't believe that. I think th- these uh, political correctness is is a new orthodoxy. You know, in a lot of ways, it's a new religion, and uh, we're I think it's entirely justifiable to laugh at aspects of it. 
without laughing without laughing at the people it's seeking to protect. But I think you you mentioned equal opportunities comedy, and I think what you've always done you take the piss out of the South Siders, you take the piss out of the North Siders, mm. the, the the working class, the upper class, the woke people, the unwoke people. Everybody's fair game in your work. I think I to think, I think that's there's comedy a, everywhere. Yeah, I think that's not a bad attitude to have to like. But I mean, I think we shouldn't. I, you know, I was mentioning comedians earlier and I actually saw an article about it recently and somebody said much the same thing as I've been thinking for a long time uh, about the Edinburgh Festival, that comedians now uh, are all on the same side. And I kind of, I, I think that's a bad thing, you know, and, and I think when politicians are all on the same side, when journalists are all on the same side, comedians, I, I that's when I start to get itchy and I kind of think, what, like, why? What's, you know, what's everybody frightened of, you know, why, the, why is everyone frightened of the opposite? And when I watch panel shows now, I just hear, you know, just really one type of joke, one type of target. Like, you know, the punchline to every second joke is a bit like Donald Trump or a bit, you know, a bit like um, Nigel Farage or a bit like Boris Johnson. And then if in doubt, just throw in something about Greg's pasties. And <laughs> it's just entirely predictable. Just the, the the targets are just entirely predictable. And that's not what good comedy is about. And it's not what good writing is about. Good comedy should be worrying at the boundaries. You know, we, um, good comedians shouldn't be listening to people saying, you, you, well, you can't tell that kind of joke. So, <clears throat> you know, when I hear comedians now and I hear that laughter in the audience that comes at the end of a, a bit like Donald Trump joke, it's just, there's nothing challenging about it. You know, it's just rubber stamping what everybody in the room believes. Um, and I, I, and I, I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't write a book like Oper- Operation Trump's Formation is clearly sending up Trump. But I send up Hillary Clinton in, in you know, in, in, in a similar way, you know. Um, and I, I kind of, I kind of, I, you know, I, I think uh, there's so many more targets, legitimate targets out there than, then people acknowledge a lot of the time, but they're frightened of it. So we are on the women's podcast. I need to ask you, Paul Arard, not Ross, because I think I know what he'd say or he'd, he'd, he wouldn't know what I was talking about. Are you a feminist? Yeah, I am a feminist. Yeah. I mean, I believe in equality. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, there's lots of people. Feminism means lots of different things to lots of different people, including inside this building. Um, uh, but I, I am a feminist. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wonder will that be cut? <laughs> and um, what Listen, do you I, think? I mean, we, I've worked in the media for thirty years, and just inside in my own my own you know uh, little bubble world, I have seen some utterly useless men uh, promoted to high. Office, not high office, but, but you know, promoted big jobs. to yeah. big jobs. And I've seen some incredibly talented women, hardworking women, having to work five times harder to get exactly where the man is. And I, that's wrong. That's, you know, I, and, and that's always uh, bothered me. I, I mean, I am a feminist. I don't I don't have I'm not a kind of performative feminist. I don't say, it doesn't say feminist in my uh, in my uh, Twitter Biog, um, 
but but yeah, I am a feminist. And what about the whole uh, Me Too thing and the people calling things out? And I know that I, you know, from speaking to you before, this can't do anything culture that mm. you know that happens where you know John Ronson wrote about it so well, where you make one mm. slip up on Twitter and your whole life is over. Yeah. But just more about the fact that there is um, that women do have seem to have a, a more of a voice now that they can call out things and be heard when things happen. Whereas yeah. for a long time, those things were just accepted that we had to just put up with them. I mean, yeah. it, it isn't the case now. And I mean, joking aside, if we can for a second, mm. that's a good thing. I would I would imagine you agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a great thing. I mean, it's a great thing. Um, you know, so many creepy men in the world, you know, and they, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like they can't be, they can't be like that anymore because everybody has one of these. Everybody has a phone. Everybody is a paparazzo now, you know, and somebody says something creepy to you in a bar. You can you can put it up. You can get you can get traction immediately. It's out there. It's out there in the world, you know, and that's a, that is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I do worry, though. I mean, not about that. I'm, I'm talking about the just the general social media justice thing. And you mentioned John Ronson there. And people who say, <clears throat> people who make mistakes in tweets and stuff like that. Like, there's never been more pressure on people with social media to be talking all the time, just to be talking constantly, communicating constantly, putting views out into the world constantly. And and the penalty for 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 a misstep has never been greater. And I kind of, I often think that if your if your thumbs aren't trembling when you're tweeting, you're not doing it properly. Or you just don't understand the seriousness of what you're doing, you know, because it can happen. You know, it can happen. You can say you can say something dumb and suddenly just wake up in your dressing gown wondering what happened to your life. Mm. Well, let's get back to Ross, because in this book, uh, he's back with Circa. Um, she's just had a baby with not with Ross, with mm. his friend Fionn. Mm. And Fionn has moved into the house, which is hilarious. Yeah. Fucking Fionn with his glasses. And um, <laughs> and then, but he still hasn't had sex with Circa yet because she's just had a baby. And obviously, as everyone except Ross knows, that's not something you necessarily want to do straight after having yeah. a baby. Uh, but he's trying to work towards that. And at some point, uh, Circa suggests that they should start dating again. Mm. Now, in Ross's work, you can explain what, what Ross takes that to mean because I just think this is... Yeah, I, li- I like... <laughs> I like playing up those differences between the sexes. It's the Mars and Venus thing, you know, that something to a man means, can often mean something completely different to, to a woman. And when and, and it's the misunderstanding between the sexes. There's this great comedy in, in that, you know, to be mined. And so when Surika says, I think, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and she said the, re, the way they've managed to keep the magic in their marriage for so long is they go out on dates. So I was thinking maybe we should start dating again. And Ross hears, you should go out and start dating other women. <laughs> and and Surika thinks we're going to have these kind of romantic... Date nights. Date nights where we, pretend we're, where we pretend we're in the first flush of love again and we have a meal and how was your day, how was your day? So they've got this completely different notion of, of the world. They see the world completely differently. And they always will. There's this chasm between them that can never, ever be bridged. So Ross... So Surika's saying to him, like, Ross is saying, are you sure you're okay with this? And she's saying, well, why wouldn't I be okay with it? It's just, you know, I thought, you know, he's just thinking, God, you usually used to get really jealous, like when I slept with other women. So he arranges a date with another woman 
And Sorok is saying to him on the day, oh, where's, where, where you go? Where, you know, where's the date planned for? And he tells the restaurant. He doesn't know she's coming. Because he thinks, he thinks that she knows with, he's yeah. going with someone else. And he's saying to himself, God, she's so cool about it, asking me where I'm going and all that kind of thing. Saying, I heard saying, the pork belly's really good there. I heard the pork there. belly in there is nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But will you read the date for us? Because the, a bit of the date. Yeah, because will, it's, yeah. Uh, it's actually Give very funny. Jesus Christ, Ava can talk. I mean, the girl hasn't shut the fuck up since we sat down at the table. And that's not me being sexist. I describe myself as religious, she goes, but it wouldn't be like super, super religious. As in, I'd definitely be spiritual, never walk under ladders, never open an umbrella indoors. But I also like different bits from different, I suppose, belief systems. As in, I'd go to mass, mostly if someone died. But then at the same time, I've also read bits of the Quran. Well, I've got a collection of memes from it on my phone. But then I'm also into like Far Eastern philosophy, incense, candles, all that. Like I actually own seven oil burners. As in, I literally can't see an oil burner without literally buying it. By the way, have you ever read The Secret? She's been talking like this for the last 15 minutes. She's either very, very nervous or more likely coked off her tits. Eventually she goes to the jacks. And I'm sitting there thinking, I honestly thought dating was going to be more fun than this. I order another bowl of prawn crackers and I whip out my phone. I notice that I've got like three missed calls from Surika and also two text messages. Been trying to ring you, the first one says. So sorry, couldn't get Hillary to settle. Running 20 mins late. And then the second one is like, nearly there. Go ahead and order if you want. I'm not going to have a storter. Can you order me the dry-aged Angus wontons in hot and sour kimchi soup, which everyone says are OMG amazing? And I'm obviously thinking, what the fuck is she talking about? That's when I look up to see her walking through the door of the restaurant. I'm up off the chair and straight across the floor going, uh, what the fuck are you doing here? The question seems to confuse her. She's like, what am I doing here? Uh, we're on a date night. Have you been drinking? My entire body suddenly turns cold and I'm replaying our conversation in my head. And then the penny finally drops. When she suggested we start dating again, Jesus Christ, she obviously meant dating each other. And, and uh, you'll have to get, buy the book, everyone, to find out what happens because it's it involves a, a, a Dublin bike that gets thrown through a window, and it's it's very, used for a purpose for which it wasn't it wasn't built. intended. It wasn't intended, but oh god, it's very funny Thanks, scene, Rob. and the whole book is hilarious. But thank you very much for coming in to talk Pleasure. to us about uh, Ross's attitude to women, your own attitude to women, about misogyny, and me too. Um, it's a conversation I feel is you know it's good to have. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we've had it many times, Roisin. <laughs> More Just entertainingly than this, with a lot more <laughs> shouting as well. <laughs> it's great that we can actually behave ourselves. To well, yeah, the things. microphone sort of levels things a bit, doesn't it? But anyway, thanks a million for coming in. Pleasure. And the best of luck with uh, Schmidt Happens and with all your other projects, which we haven't talked about. But maybe you'll come in, talk to us about all your other things. Fingers in to. many pies that you have, if that's still OK to say. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Howard, thanks very much. Thanks, Roisin. <laughs> And that's it for today. Thanks to Paul Howard for coming into studio and keep an eye out for the latest brilliant Ross O'Carroll Kelly book, Schmidt Happens. It's in all good bookshops. And I also have to tell you that tonight, Monday, there is a brilliant documentary on about Paul. It's called We Need to Talk About Ross. It's on at 9.35pm on RTE1 uh, and that's Monday the 2nd of September and I have a little tiny cameo in it as well so you can watch out for that. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts we're on Spotify Apple Podcasts and all good podcast apps if you want to get in touch 
search. We're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 